Our God takes very personally when people hurt his own. He blesses those who bless us. He curses those who curse us. And when we are hurt, it's as if they are attacking God himself. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new four-part series titled The Disciples' Greatest Danger. Have you ever thought about how many things there are to fear? For some, snakes, planes, heights, and even large crowds can send a shiver down their spine. Certainly, some of those things can indeed feel dangerous and cause deep fear. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, commanded to trust God in all situations, have you ever thought about what should be your deepest fear? Well, through this series in Mark chapter 9, you'll discover two of the greatest dangers in the life of a Christian, causing others to sin and tolerating personal sin. Your response to sin is what you should fear most. The question is, will you take the warning of Christ seriously? Well, Tom, doesn't the Bible say that Christians aren't supposed to be afraid? It's true. Again and again, the Scripture tells us not to be afraid. But there are at least two things the Scripture tells us to fear. And one of those is God Himself. We are to fear Him in the sense that we are to respect Him, we are to honor Him. We're to fear displeasing him. But we're also told to fear sin. And that's really the message Christ has in the text we're going to study together. We have to fear causing others to sin because they are Christ. They belong to him. And we have to fear tolerating our own sin and allowing sin into our own lives in a way that's destructive. These are important lessons, crucial. Here's something we ought to be afraid of. Thanks, Tom. And friend, open your Bible now as we join our teacher here on The Word Unleashed. Even though, in some measure, crime is down from when many of us were growing up, people are more fearful about crime than they've ever been before. Fear is such an ingrained part of our culture that businesses actually sell their products based on fear. One of the most obvious examples of that are the producers of television news who use fear to motivate you to turn on the news at 11. You know, how often have you heard something like this? Research uncovers a deadly new danger that may be lurking in your home. Join us at 11 to see if you are at risk. Last year, the Boston Globe reported on the top 10 fears of Americans. Not really a surprising list. This one's surprising for me just because it's what I do all the time, but topping the list is public speaking. Some of you understand that fear. I hear a little bit about that when it comes to baptism and other things. Secondly, snakes, confined spaces, heights, spiders, tunnels and bridges, crowds, public transportation, especially airplanes, storms, and water, as in swimming and drowning. But let me ask you tonight, what is your greatest fear? More importantly, 
What should it be? Tonight in Mark chapter 9, Jesus tells us exactly what it should be. Just to remind you of the context that we're looking at, at some point after the transfiguration that begins chapter 9, and after some five months of living in Gentile areas, Jesus has brought his disciples back to Galilee, back to Capernaum, back to the city on the northwest corner of the lake there that has been his ministry headquarters during the great Galilean portion of his ministry. Jesus and his disciples probably arrived back in the city of Capernaum from Caesarea Philippi late in the day near the time of the evening meal. And apparently, after their meal was done, Jesus assumed the official position of a rabbi, their teacher. The larger context of the passage that we're looking at tonight is really from verses 33 all the way down through verse 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I want to begin tonight by just looking at the first of those. The danger of sin, the danger of specifically causing others to sin. Look again at verse 42. Here's where he makes this point. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. This exact warning also occurs in the parallel passage in Matthew 18, verse 6. But it was apparently a saying that was somewhat common with Jesus and that he had repeated at least one other time because we find it in a totally different context in Luke chapter 17, verse 2. Now, as we begin to consider what our Lord means here, let's first of all consider the connection of this saying with its context here. What's the connection between this verse and what Jesus has just said? Well, in verses 37 and 41, Jesus has just told his disciples that he takes very personally the way believers are treated. In fact, to treat a believer a certain way is to treat Christ the same way. Look at verse 37. Whoever receives one child like this in my name, receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me only, but him who sent me. And look down in verse 41, where he reiterates the point in a slightly different way. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Now both of those verses show the positive side. If you receive a believer... If you welcome him, you are welcoming Christ. If you give any believer, even an insignificant one, a cup of water because he or she is a follower of Christ, 
In the mind of Christ, it's as if you've done it directly to him. That's the positive side. Now in verse 42, Jesus explains the same point negatively. If instead of receiving or welcoming a believer, if instead of helping a believer, you don't receive them, you don't help them, but you become a cause of sin in their lives, then it is sinning against Christ and he will take it very personally. That's the point of verse 42. We understand this, don't we? Few things stir the human soul more than someone attacking our children. That response is instinctive with both animals and with people made in God's image. Why is that? Why particularly for those made in God's image? It's because we are made in God's image. And our defensive response to those who sinfully or wrongfully attack our children is in reality a faint echo of God's own response. And how he responds when his children are in any way mistreated. And he responds to others based on how they treat his children. This has always been true, by the way. You see it from the very beginning. Go back to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, in the Abrahamic covenant, you remember what God said to Abram? God rescues Abram, snatches him out of the idolatry of Ur of the Chaldees and makes him his own sovereign salvation at its clearest. And then he makes this promise to Abram. Verse 2, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. That was true of Abraham and his people, the ethnic people of God. It is true of all of God's people, including those of us who have been chosen and brought into the church. God takes the treatment of his own very personally. You see it again over in the prophet Zechariah. Look at Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8. You've probably heard this reference before, but I love this. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he, speaking to God's people here, he who touches you, that is, who, who hurts you, who harms you, touches the apple of his eye. Notice his is capitalized. This is God. Using a, a sort of anthropomorphic or anthropopathic expression that is some way to picture God using human characteristics and traits. Here God is described in anthropomorphic terms as having an eye. God, of course, is a spirit. He doesn't have an eye. But he talks about the pupil. That word apple has to do with the the cornea, the very sensitive center part of your eye. And God says, when somebody reaches out to harm my people, when they reach out to touch my people, to hurt them, it's as if they thrust their finger into my eye. You see the same thing over in the book of Acts. You remember Jesus' response to Saul? Acts chapter 9, there on the Damascus Road when he sees this light, verse 3, that flashed all around him. He's knocked down to the ground. Verse 4, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Notice he doesn't say, why are you persecuting my followers? Jesus on the Damascus road says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? Our God takes very personally when people hurt his own. It's as if someone tried to ram a finger in the eye of God. He blesses those who bless us. He curses those who curse us. And when we are hurt, it's as if they are attacking God himself. Why are you persecuting me? Tonight, our Lord paints the reality of his protective care for his own in very graphic terms. Look back at, again at verse 42 of Mark 9. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. Now, notice the extent of the warning here. It's a universal truth. Whoever. The indefinite pronoun is all-inclusive. There are no exceptions to the point Jesus is about to make. Whoever. Doesn't matter who they are. But who's the focus of this statement? Who's the subject of the warning? Notice the expression, one of these little ones who believe. Now, if you go back to verse 36 of Mark 9, Jesus there had used a child who was present in this home as a kind of object lesson. You remember? Jesus is teaching his disciples these things. And in the middle of that, verse 36 He calls a little child over after dinner. It's possible that it was in Peter's home there in Capernaum. It's even possible it was one of Peter's own children. So the Lord calls this child over. And at first, Luke tells us the child stood next to Jesus. But then Jesus took the child up in his arms. Literally, Mark says that Jesus held the child in the bend of his arm. So you get some idea of the size of this little child. Old enough to stand and walk, but young enough to be held in the crook of your arm. So this is a young child. Perhaps old enough to believe, but probably not. Regardless, Jesus clearly here is not merely referring to physical children. He's referring to those who believe. He says that. These little ones who believe. Jesus uses, by the way, this expression are similar expressions of adult followers. He calls them children in other places. Look over in chapter 10, verse 24. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, this is to the 12, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus uses this same expression, little ones, in Matthew 10.42, where there is no mention in the context of children at all. And in Matthew 18, the parallel passage, he uses little ones to refer to the straying sheep. You remember the, the sheep that strayed and that the shepherd went out to get, which is referring to a believer who strays into sin and has to be brought back that we are to help bring back. So, we're talking about believers. Insignificant. The, the significance here of little ones is just an insignificant, everyday believer. Nobody great. All of us. Whoever, and the subject is one of these little ones who believe. Now, who are the recipients of this warning? To whom is this warning addressed? 
First of all, it's, it's addressed to unbelievers. How do we know that? Well, because of the parallel passage over in Matthew 18. In that passage, Matthew adds this verse. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. It's clear from this reference that Jesus meant for unbelievers this warning. Those who delight in trying to get believers to sin. If you've been involved with people in the world at all, if you've interacted either with unsafe family or an unsafe workplace, you understand what this is like. I remember when I was in several jobs, when I was working, when I was younger, you know, in, in the shipyards, when I was working in the funeral home and in other contexts, um, I remember that while I did my best to have a, a good relationship with my coworkers, and most of the time it was tolerable, it was not unusual for them to try to tempt me to sin. I remember specifically at various times the men I worked with encouraging me to get drunk with them, encouraging me to have a sexual relationship with the girl I was dating at the time, encouraging me to lie to the boss. You understand this. When unbelievers do that to believers, it's as if they are sinning directly against Christ. That's part of what this warning means. You see that in Matthew 25, you remember, and we won't take the time to turn there, but you remember Matthew 25, the judgment of the sheep and the goats, where Jesus says there will be those who stand before him, and Jesus says to them, you're going you're gonna to be cast into everlasting fire because I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was in prison and you didn't visit me. And they say, wait a minute. When did we see you like that? And he says, to the extent that you didn't do it to these who believe in me, you didn't do it to me. And the opposite is true as well. To sin against them is to sin against Christ. But Mark's record shows that this warning was not solely for unbelievers. It was a warning intended for us as well. It was also tended, intended for believers. Because by using the word in verse 42, whoever, Jesus included everyone, including believers. Also, the context in both Matthew and Mark points to this. Because Jesus is sitting in a house alone with his disciples teaching them essential lessons about discipleship. And so this warning is for us, the danger of causing others to sin. It's really like Paul says in 1 Corinthians eight twelve: by sinning against the brethren, you sin against Christ. We could say by causing them to sin, you sin against Christ as well. Now let's look at the, the meaning of Jesus' warning. What exactly does he mean? Look at verse 42. The, the key here is causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble. There's the offense that invites the wrath of Jesus. Causes to stumble. Now this translates one Greek word. This verb comes from the noun scandalon, which you'll recognize obviously the English word scandal. But in Greek, this noun originally referred to the bait stick on a trap or a snare. 
the animal, as he was going after the bait or the food, would brush against that stick and it would trigger the trap. Some of you have had some experience with this. So it came to refer to anything against which a person strikes. Included a stumbling block, it included a trap or an obstacle. The verb form then that's used here came to mean several things. It came to refer to obstructing someone's path, to being a stumbling block. It came to mean to cause pain or to displease, like our modern use of the word offend. You offended me. But the most common usage, and the one that's here, is it means to make someone stumble and fall morally, to cause them to sin. That's the idea in this context. So Jesus says, if anyone causes a Christian to sin, it would be better for that person to have a millstone hung around his neck and to be cast into the sea. Now it's interesting here because notice those words, heavy millstone. Literally the Greek text reads, a millstone of a donkey. That's very interesting because if you know the culture, that has significance. You see, in the first century, to mill various grains to make flour, the people of the ancient world had designed a simple stone device. On the bottom of this device was a stone shaped like an upside-down cone with its curved point sticking up. Then sitting on top of that was a large stone that fit perfectly over that cone, and in the top of the middle there was a hole for feeding the grain into, in the harvested grain, and then there was, usually there was something coming out the side of that upper stone that enabled you to turn it. And as it was turned, the grain was ground between the upper and the lower stones. Now there were two sizes of these millstones. One was relatively small so that a woman could turn it by hand. The other was so large that it took an animal to turn it. It weighed several hundred pounds. Clearly, it's this larger, heavier kind that Jesus had in mind. Jesus says, if you cause a believer to sin, it would have been better for you to have died by having one of these tied around your neck and thrown into the Lake of Galilee. Jesus' warning describes a brutal, frightening form of death, but it was one with which the disciples would have been familiar. There was at least one example of this very thing happening in Israel. The Romans had done exactly this to some of the leaders under an early Jewish zealot named Judas the Galilean. They literally took that upper stone that weighed several hundred pounds And through the hole in the center, they put a rope, and then they tied it around the people's necks, went out into the Sea of Galilee, and threw them overboard. That's what Jesus is describing. Now, what does Jesus mean? It would be better for them if this had happened. In what sense would it be better for a true believer to have a millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the sea? Why is it better that his life ends prematurely and violently? Now, this is a theological question. 
We know that a believer is fully and completely forgiven in justification, that he will never stand before God in judgment for his sin. So what does Jesus mean? Well, he has to mean one of two things. He has to mean, first of all, that the person who regularly causes believers to sin may very well not be a Christian at all. This is a warning. This is a warning. How you treat believers is a barometer of the reality of your own faith. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series titled The Disciples' Greatest Danger. Tom will have part two for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.